So there. So there. So there. So there. Let me know your thoughts. So there. So there. So there. Let me know your thoughts. Why do you keep saying let us know your thoughts? Let me know your thoughts to me is a nice lead-in for So There. So There. Welcome to episode 56 of So There. there. I'm Gary Doyle. And I'm Tom Karamitis. Tom, how are you today? Kind of a bleak weekend, kind of a weather-wise. Bleak, bleak late April weekend. You know, reminding us again how we have, you know, we have an unfavorable climate in Chicago. But then again, that's what makes it the city more affordable. It's uh, that's you know, yeah. it's not a destination for climate lovers. Yes, that is true. Um, you know, if it were, if, if it had weather like Los Angeles, we'd have, uh, you know, I think the weather here kind of um, has a way of weeding out the a-holes. Explain. Well, you know, I think, um, I think a lot of the a-holes will go somewhere where the weather's nice, like Florida or California, just because, you know, they want life to be easy. Um you know, but Chicago kind of, I think, weeds out some of those folks. And it's not to say there's not there's not a-holes here. There are. But, uh, you know, I think it weeds out some of them. And so you end up with people that are a little bit more, um, I don't know, you know, normal stock, I guess. Interesting. Interesting. Because I always thought you, for the longest time, used to bemoan the weather here. Oh, um, yeah. So... But you're kind of giving giving Chicagoans kind of a bit of a badge of honor for enduring it. Yeah, I mean, I still bemoan the weather. I still can't stand it, but I do think it has a I do think it has a weeding out effect. Somebody sent me a thing the other day. I just was uh, looking it up. <laughs> this is kind of funny. Chicago actually has twelve seasons, Tom. Twelve. Are you, re- are you ready? Yes. That's what Trump used to say. Are you ready? <laughs> Twelve seasons. Here we go. Winter, full spring, second winter, spring of deception, <laughs> third winter, the pollening, actual spring, summer, hell's front porch, false fall, second summer, actual fall. <laughs> what is hell's front porch supposed to mean? That's the height of summer. Oh, uh, August. Okay. <laughs> okay. 91 and humid. Yep. <laughs> Fool spring. Spring of deception. <laughs> we're in the, uh, we're in the spring of this. De- we're either in the spring of deception now or the third winter. <laughs> speaking of, um, speaking of, 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 of the seasons, I, I learned something, uh, thanks to something you, you talked about in a previous pod when you were talking about some of these, um, how the car dealers have these kind of events that they they, they, they proclaim, uh, but no one really ever knows about them except the, the car dealers. I learned uh, via television commercial that apparently April is Ford Truck Month. <laughs> I did not know that. I went to work the next day and asked my coworkers, hey, guys, you where? April's Ford Truck Month. Nobody knew. <laughs> <laughs> I 
I wonder I, I if do. you go to a Ford dealership, if, if they even know at the dealership that April is Ford Truck Month. You should walk into a Ford dealer and say, hey, guys, what month is this? <laughs> and they'll go, April? No, no, no. What month is April? <laughs> Ford Truck Month, you doofuses. <laughs> what are you, stupid? <laughs> then you walk out. <laughs> Take my business elsewhere. Find another Ford dealer. Will give me the the monthly discount that apparently Ford Truck Month would offer everybody. Huge, huge discount if you just mention that April is Ford Truck Month. And you tell them that Brian or Lexington. <laughs> Well, in this episode, we were talking about introducing a new a, a new feature, which is is um, it's kind of related to something we did on the very early episodes of So There. And by early episodes, I'm talking about at this point five years ago, um, when we used to take apart songs um, mm. and and quote bad lyrics. Mm. But I think uh, what, one of the things we're going to do now is we wanted to kind of introduce not just bad lyrics, but perhaps. Lyrics that are memorable for one reason or another and get into a little, uh, how you say, kind of academic song analysis. Um, and uh, I wanted to kick things off. Are you, are you game for this exploration, Mr. Doyle? Yeah, did you say exploration or sexploration? <laughs> well, it depends on the song. In this case, it's probably a little of both. Sure, let's give it a whirl. All right, um... I wanted to quote uh, one of my all-time favorite lyrics uh, um, from the the great and late Mr. Loaf, Meatloaf. Uh. Um, his lyrics were written by Jim Steinman, but I always this was always one of my favorite lyrics of a, in any song. And I did a little bit of a deep dive into the song itself, and it's an interesting song. The lyric I'll quote uh, quote to you is from uh, Two Out of Three Ain't Bad," and the lyric is. I want you, I need you, but there ain't no way I'm ever going to love you. Now, don't be sad, because two out of three ain't bad. (laughs) And I I just thought it was absolutely brilliant. Every time I hear it, I I laugh, um, uh, because it it makes me think that the rest of the song is going to kind of be kind of a a, a cold, (laughs) bitter... Uh, jettisoning of a relationship but in reality uh, when I started diving a little more into the song it's actually a pretty sad song it's uh, and and um, and and it has an interesting twist at the end but basically the 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 song is about two people um, uh, and apparently the you know the the, the singer Jim you know uh, meatloaf and and the woman he's with they can't come to terms on on the level of relationship they're having um, uh, which culminates in that in that memorable verse. Um, but as the song progresses, you find out towards the end that this this memorable verse, I want you, I need you, there ain't no way I'm ever going to love you, now don't be sad because two out of three ain't bad. That was something that, that the only woman the singer ever really loved, right? She said that to him, right? So now he's returning the favor in his current relationship. I'll, I'll read that, that section where the song turns a little bit. He says, um, Now there's only one girl I'll ever love, and that was so many years ago. And though, I'll never, and though I know I'll never get her out of my heart, 
she never loved me back, I know. Well, I remember how she left me on a stormy night. Oh, she kissed me and got out of our bed. And though I pleaded and begged her not to walk out that door, she packed her bags and turned right away. And she kept on telling me, she kept on telling me, and then it goes again, I want you, I need you. And all of a sudden I thought to myself, that's kind of a, a sweet song, uh, you know. Um, when all I really used to remember about the song was that, that, that brilliant but crass verse, I kind of, it, it kind of uh, did a little turn with me yesterday when I did a little research on the song. So there. Well, uh, I mean, it's a, it's an operatic kind of lyric that, I mean, Meatloaf's songs were operatic. And I also think, I don't, I think that hearing you talk about it, I think that Mr. Loaf, and by the, by the way, the New York Times will call subjects of any story after they refer to them for the first time, like Tom Karamidas, after that you'll be Mr. Karamidas. So when Meatloaf was popular and they'd re- review Meatloaf, they would actually call him Mr. Loaf <laughs> after the first reference to Meatloaf. Yes, Mr. Loaf <laughs> deals in operatic. Yeah. Um, but I think that, you know, I think of that, I think of that lyric, and then I think of, you know, his other famous song, um, Paradise by the Dashboard Light and at one point in that he says uh, I'm going to love you till the end of time and then says and now I'm praying for the end of time <laughs> <laughs> after they uh, you know consummate things so I think considering all that maybe Mr. Loaf has inti- intimacy issues maybe he fears intimacy What do you think? Yeah, you know, um, of course, it's hard to separate Mr. Loaf from from Mr. Steinman. Um, right. Uh, right. And, and I made the mistake. Uh, I, I made a comment recently on a, on, a, on a chat board about a lyric in a Carpenter song. And, and knowing the tragic story of Karen Carpenter, uh, I, I, I quoted a lyric that she sang, which seemed to really um, summarize what she was going through in her later life. And somebody jumped all over me and said, she didn't write her own lyrics, dude. <laughs> and I said, yeah, I, I, I'm, thank you. I'm, I'm, I'm well aware of that. But, but still, it's very hard to separate the lyricist from the singer. You know, it, in this case, Meatloaf was not a singer-songwriter. He was a singer. Um, but the words are still coming out of his mouth. Um, uh, anyway, I, I didn't answer your question. At this point, I've forgotten what your question was. So have I. <laughs> Karen Carpenter, did she not write any of her lyrics? Because her lyrics are very sad. She is a sad... So I just figured she wrote them. I don't think she wrote any of her lyrics. They, the, song, the songs I was familiar with, they always had outside writers. She, she was, I mean, she was quite the accomplished drummer. I always found her backstory right. so fascinating because for years she didn't sing. She sat in the background playing drums. And here's somebody that, that I think a lot of people acknowledge as one of the great voices of the of our generation you know um and she didn't really start singing until later on i mean her brother 
Richard was always seen as the musical genius in the family, and she was, you know, kind of given, you know, the back of the hand for a long time. Um, when you mentioned uh, when you mentioned the New York Times referring to somebody as Mister after the first mention of their full name, it made me think of Prince in the 1990s when he decided he wanted to just be known as that symbol. Remember? Oh um, yeah, glyph. Yeah, um, and and then much to his chagrin, the music industry started referring to him as AFCAP, artist formerly known as Prince, <laughs> and apparently that that drove him that drove him nuts. <laughs> That's exactly what he didn't want. So there. So there. Tom, another song that um, has hidden meaning that I learned, I was I was lucky enough a few years ago to record tracks, and sorry for the flex here, but I, I recorded tracks for a commercial at Abbey Road in London, of course, where the Beatles recorded Abbey Road. Um, and, you know, amazing experience, of course. One thing I learned there, and this may be an apocryphal story, but it was an interesting story, is in Abbey Road there's... Um, there's there's a there's a cafe where you can go and, and eat and, and get a coffee or whatever um, for the or the artists go, and then outside of that is a little courtyard. It's a it's sort of a courtyard, beautiful little courtyard surrounded by the building, kind of an enclosed courtyard. And somebody told me that George Harrison wrote "Here Comes the Sun" in that courtyard. And I don't know if you've ever heard the story, but "Here Comes the Sun." So think of the lyrics to that, little darling. Um, it's been a long, cold, lonely winter. It's been years since it's been clear, you know. Uh, here comes the sun. So he wrote that. So they re- they re- they recorded Abbey Road, and they were all fighting, and 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 it was just the relationships were brutal between them, he and the other Beatles, and Yoko was in the sessions and and all that, and and it was toxic, and so he went out into this courtyard, and it was a rare sunny day in in England. He went into this courtyard. And wrote this song about that. That was about those relationships. You know, it's been a long, cold, lonely winter. You know, it's been years since it's been clear. And then interesting, he wrote that about that, what they were going through at the time. Didn't he, um, I thought, did he write that with Eric Clapton? I'd Not always that I know th- of. I the story that I always heard George was Harrison's he- song. Yeah, it was, but I th- I'd always heard he'd wrote he'd written it in Eric Clapton's backyard or something. That there was a ah. but I could I I could be mistaken, but um, but you're probably right. I don't think Eric Clapton is credited as a co-writer on that song, so maybe it was at Eric Clapton's house or something. But you heard it was in the courtyard at Abbey Road Studios. I think maybe what maybe not sure maybe what you're confusing is you know the song Layla was written by Eric Clapton about George Harrison's wife. He was in love with George Harrison's wife and, and couldn't right, couldn't do anything about it because she was married to George Harrison. But he had this mad, insane uh, crush on her. I don't know. I mean, that's what you're talking about. Maybe, maybe that's a story they just tell of advertising rubes like me at Abbey Road. What were you recording at Abbey Road? We were recording for Edward Jones. Um, we wanted to use the song... Um, uh, Bob O'Reilly, mm-hmm. the who. in in the Who in a, in a 
And so um, we, it was one of those deals where we brought in um, session studio session musicians to recreate the song, to make it sound exactly like Bob O'Reilly because we could not afford the original Bob O'Reilly track. So the people that recorded it wanted to use Abbey Road because it had that old kind of studio vibe. And Abbey Road, you know, um, they actually wanted to record it where Bob O'Reilly was originally recorded called Olympic Studios, which is now closed in London. So they went to Abbey Road. And, and Abbey Road is about six or seven studios. It's a big complex. But we recorded in the studio where the Beatles recorded Abbey Road. There's these pictures of the stairway that goes up from the, from the studio to the mixing booth. Mixing booth is above, like, looking down on the studio. It's kind of a weird setup. But we recorded in that studio. And, yeah, it was pretty... Pretty trippy life. Life memory. That's incredible. That's a, uh, you know, to to do that kind of it's to do that kind of trip is 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 one of those one of those times when you're thankful you're in the business you're in. Like, look what my look what I get to do in my job. I get to go to London, go to Abbey Road, and record a music track at Abbey Road. That's that's yeah. Oh, totally. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, we, you know, we've all had this experience of working with, you know, incredible cinematographers or directors or music people that have gone on to win Oscars and the the, ta- the, peop- the talented people and the places you get to do things at in production are, are yeah, they're incredible. I never, I never, never take it for granted. So there. Little uh, little palate cleanser here mid pod, uh, and I thought that maybe our the, the the trend was dying. I thought maybe the noun as verb thing had run its course because I wasn't really hearing very many. But then yesterday, seat geek, so fans can fan. Oh no, Tom, this shows no sign of dying. No, no, this is. <laughs> I, I I saw one the other day too. I forget, but it's it is if anything only growing. Yeah. Well, this wasn't really a uh, this next one wasn't really a um, a uh, noun as verb, but there was there was an Infinity commercial on that had a tagline that was incomprehensible to me. So I wanted to offer uh, offer it up to you to see if you can help me with it. Oh, yeah. um, the tagline at the end of the Infinity commercial was luxury that lets you feel infinitely you. Now, I get what they were trying to do is, you know, if we bring in a form of the word infinity, but, I, but I, I kept taking it apart and I cannot, what does this even mean? Luxury that lets you feel infinitely you. What does feeling infinitely you mean? Yeah, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, the, I, I think if a person can't eat that tagline, I might punch them in the throat. <laughs> I'd have to resist the urge to punch them in the throat. Um, I don't know. You know, it, I, I, there's a lot of automakers that that have inane. You know, another another infinity thing that I heard on a po- on a podcast is never stop beginning. Never stop beginning. Yeah, that's their. That's the other infinity tagline. Never stop beginning. Okay. Well, that I understand, though. There, I, I assume that means never stop going back to to square one and refiguring it out. And yeah, you know. 
I just feel like they fell in love with the that they needed to work some form of the word infinity into the tagline. So they basically just spit this out, and I think to mo- most people would just ignore it. I think just like most taglines, you tend to just ignore them. Um, but I kept being haunted by what being feeling infinitely you meant. How could I be any more me than what I normally would be? What's the uh, what's the tagline of Toyota? I think to- doesn't Toyota have an inane one? <sighs> okay, I looked it up. It's not that inane. It's not as inane as I remember. Let's go places. Okay, it's okay. I think a lot of times, honestly, with these Japanese car companies, I think what happens is is they come up with this phrase in Japan, and in English, it maybe doesn't make a lot of sense, and yet it becomes the global, the global campaign, and and the American agencies have to work with it, and they're like, well, I think this is a little vague, and they're like, sorry, it's the global, it's the global campaign. This is what it is. Well, it's like what I read when I when I looked up two out of three ain't bad. Apparently, that song when it was re- recorded by a, some some Japanese pop band, they changed the lyric to sixty six percent isn't bad. I guess the notion of two out of three didn't make sense in Japanese, <laughs> so they converted it to a percentage. Do you know what uh, Lexus's tagline is? What experience amazing. Ah, okay. I feel like Lexus is bending over backwards to become relevant to a younger demographic. Absolutely. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, they are only olds by Lexus. Yeah. They're good cars, but it's like Buicks, only yeah. olds by Buick. They've got a huge problem. Yeah. yeah. They're good cars. But yeah. Yeah, they're desperate to uh, you know, appeal to the younger demographic. <laughs> so there. Tom, I'm sure you're aware you're in the advertising business. This is awards season. Yes. <laughs> Lots of agencies entering awards. I learned the other day, do you know how many categories there are at Can to enter awards for? Just guess. Categories. Uh, 25. There are something like 2,600 <laughs> categories. How can that be? <laughs> categories. So within each category, I, I, I there's... Heard, I heard this. <laughs> and I don't doubt it. I mean, yeah. I guess in some way, I, I, that, that number just befuddles me, but I guess in some ways it's not surprising because that's how, that's how they make their money, right? Entry, uh, entry fees. So the more things they can come up with, have people enter, uh, I guess the better. But... I, I, I said 25, and you said 2,600 or whatever the number is. There must be a whole bunch of categories that are so obscure that nobody knows about. That's what it is. That's right. Yeah, and it goes into a deep dive down the rabbit hole of different, like, you know, financial B2B, you know. Um, you know, um, typography, um you know sound <laughs> so you could win you could win typography uh, in financial services of the year and you could run out of the award saying i won best in show <laughs> shouting it in the streets 
LinkedIn. Yeah. <laughs> Honored and humbled. Have you ever seen that one? Yes. It's almost as bad as thoughts and prayers. Yeah, it is. I think no one... This is an I decree. I, I decree. decree. No one shall ever say honored and humbled about any news they have on LinkedIn. I don't care if it's a promotion or a winning an award. If you're honored, that's fine. It's the humbled part. I don't really understand. How is that humbling? Honored and humbled. When you, you're saying when you win, the, to react and say why honored. Are you humbled? Yeah, why are you humbled? I get how you're honored. Well, I guess you're humbled because you're, you're the false modesty of saying, um, I'm really not as great as you guys think I am. <laughs> I'm so humbled. Didn't stop me from posting on LinkedIn. <laughs> I'm not quite that humble. I'm not quite that humble, son. <laughs> it's only worth it if you enjoy it. <laughs> so there. I want to bring things back to our kind of a more everyday life uh, experience. Um, have you noticed... Uh, Waiters in restaurants. Have you noticed the fact that, that sometimes there are some waiters who uh, un, uh, will not, under any circumstances, write anything down? Oh yeah. Oh. And yeah. and it seems like it half gives the time me anxiety. Yeah, and you ask them. You, you, you know, usually, somebody at the table say, "You getting all this?" And but I'm wondering if in 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 waiter circles, if that is seen as some kind of badge of honor right if if you're if you're seen in the waiter world as a better waiter if you don't have to ever write anything down um because i think as a general rule it seems to be a trend that that i see more in upscale restaurants than like if you go into a diner um yeah right it's also a trend i think it's a flex that waiters do for large parties like i've noticed it with parties of eight or ten people and it's like, wait, like you said, you, you got that? You, you got you got that I wanted Thousand Island on the, you know, and no radishes? You got that? Yeah. <laughs> on the salad? You got that? Yeah. Yeah, I don't, uh, but but as, as a customer, I mean, it, it just seems like it's something that people, us sitting at the table, it wouldn't. We, we, don't, we don't need that. We don't value it. In fact, we would probably feel better if they were writing it down. Yet waiters, uh, you know, I guess you're right. It's, it's, it's like a form of waiter muscle flexing, you know. I also find, okay, maybe tell me if you agree with this, predominantly male wa- you know, males over females do this. I, yeah. can't, I can't think of an experience where a, a, a waitress didn't write the stuff down. I think they're much more sensible, um, and you know it's it's probably the male equivalent of, you know, looking yourself in the mirror at the health club as you flex. I mean, yeah, as you as you do your ex, as you do your your uh, shoulder lifts, as you do your <laughs> bicep curls, standing in front of the mirror. Yeah, you know what else waiters say? You know, you ever had a waiter say to you, they come to say their name. My name is Wayne, and I'll be taking care of you tonight. <laughs> you get that? <laughs> And I'm like, I, I want you to serve me. I don't want you to take care of me. You know, my mom takes care of me. 
the doctor takes care of me. You could reply to that and say, well, that's great. I'm Gary and I'll be eating tonight. <laughs> <laughs> it's an affect. I guess it's their kind of way to, to, to greet you. Although what's wrong with just saying, hi, I'm Gary. Can you guys kind of get you guys started? Drink order? Or I'll be your server. Yeah. yeah. Although that's obvious. I have to tell yeah. you that. I don't think. Um, yeah. I may have mentioned this in the pod, but I had a, I had a friend um, who recently passed away, sadly. But I had a friend who um, had a great thing in a restaurant when the waiter came up and they'd talk about, you know, specials and so forth, what they liked. My friend would always say, what's the worst thing on the menu? <laughs> Which I'm sure would absolutely flummox the waiter. No, it, it, you know it's actually a fascinating question to ask in a restaurant. Here's why: because it re- it reveals who your waiter is. Some waiters will go, "Oh, everything's great. I really can't pick anything," you know. But then some waiters will go, "You do not want to get the lamb shank," <laughs> and it really is a great test of how honest they are. Yeah, there's a middle ground. My my guess is most of them would take, which is to say, um, the lamb shank. I don't like lamb shank. Is great. I'm told it's great, but I just don't like <laughs> lamb shank. Yeah, but but it's interesting because some go right for that. Oh, do not get the whatever sole fillet sole. Yeah, and then you get the ones who try and yeah, then you get the ones who try to equivocate and waffle and like you know ah I you know I love everything. <laughs> Have you ever worked as a waiter in your uh, formative years? No, I've had uh, many restaurant jobs. I've been a busboy. I've been a dishwasher. I've been a, um, but never a waiter. My restaurant jobs are so bad that a waiter was an aspirational goal. Hmm. Have you? I worked as a dishwasher for one day in a Chinese restaurant. And I, you know, what, what got me, it was really my first job. A terrible um, job. It was. And, and the thing that made it worse for me was that uh, nobody in the restaurant spoke English. So I felt standing over a sink all night washing dishes and there was nearly nobody you could even talk to. So I yeah. I kind of bowed out after that one. You get that big industrial strength sprayer. Right? Oh, yeah. That, big, that thing, that big hose. And then you open the thing for the dishes and this huge cloud of steam comes out just because industrial size, you know, and you get the, and you spray all the, that's yeah, terrible. I just remember what an Im- incredible come down it was. I mean, I had gotten here. I got my first job. I'm, I have a job. I'm after school. I'm going to this restaurant, and they're going to pay me three dollars fifty cents an hour, whatever it was <laughs> those days. And just how, within about fifteen minutes, I was thoroughly depressed and kind of <laughs> feeling anxious about the whole thing. Am I allowed to quit? How many How many weeks do I oh, need yeah. to do this? What's appropriate? Oh yeah. And I went home that night, and I told my parents, and they said, "No, just just give your give your notice and notice and and offer up to work two more weeks." But then they said, "No, if you if you're not happy, the, the restaurant said you don't need to come back." So maybe I wasn't as effective a dishwasher as I assumed I would be. <laughs> did they champ you? It's okay, champ. Did they did they give you the redirect? No, 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 it's okay. Okay, they probably they probably didn't Japanese. They probably didn't Chinese. I said, you know, I think I'd be better suited to be the manager. Is there any way we could work that out? <laughs> they said, You're sixteen years old, son. <laughs> I once had a job when I you know what my job was? I went to a hotel, it was a Sheridan, and my job was to 
I'd get there about 4.30 or 5 in the morning, and my dad would take me there. I think this was high school. He would take me there. And, and from 4th, I'd get there at 5, I'd have to leave a newspaper and a cup of coffee on the front, on the door of every room. So you pour the coffee, walk around every room, <clears throat> put the cup of coffee in the newspaper outside the door. And when I was done with that job, which would take a couple hours because it was a big hotel, I then moved mattresses. M- move? What do you mean you moved different them? different rooms. I don't know why. Okay. I, don't know, I can't remember why I did it, but I moved mattresses. I remember that being my job the rest of the day. Like they were changing out mattresses or replacing them or... That's that backbreaking. That's heavy. That's horrible. Job. Heavy stuff. Well, the coffee was bad too. That was hard. It doesn't sound hard, but it is. Like you know, four hundred doors. Yeah, yeah. So you had what? You did you have like a cart and you had the newspaper stacked no. at one point? No, I uh, no no cart. It didn't make things easy. It was all like manually carrying the news, the newspapers around and the coffee. There was no. There were no labor-saving devices involved. This was the Sheridan in, in East Eastern East Indianapolis. <laughs> and how long did you? Was that over a summer you did this job? Yeah, something okay. like that. So it wasn't during school time. You see, you didn't have to go to school right after that. I don't think so. Yeah. Okay. All right. All right. My 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 most memorable uh, summer job was I sold shoes at a Florsheim store in Hackensack, New Jersey. Wow. And uh, uh, my uh, the skill I developed was being able to instantly tell a woman's shoe size just by glancing <laughs> at her feet. <laughs> that is a great skill. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Not very marketable, but it was a good skill. I used to, I'll bet that kind of impressed the ladies. Well, what they would do is like I'd look at somebody's foot and I'd say, okay, she's a six and a half. And she'd say... Um, can I see this in a five and a five and a half? And I'd bring her out the size she asked for, but I'd also bring out the size I knew she was. And more often than not, that's, that was the, that was the winning, the winning box. Wow. Yes. Wow. But I, know, I, I think a woman might take exception though, if you guessed that her feet were larger than they were. Do you think maybe? No, I had a, I, I had a, a backup plan for that. I would always say this, this, this style tends to run small. Ah. <laughs> uh, yes. The magic of Tom Carmine. Never knew that about you, yeah. shoe salesman. That's that's fascinating. Next time we get together with our wives, I'll glance at Lisa's feet and I'll tell her her shoe size right to her face. Like the guy at the carnival who guesses your weight. Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that is quite a parlor trick. <laughs> Well, on that fascinating note, uh, we'd like to wrap this up. Thank you for listening. Um, uh, I, I don't think we've thanked our our, our, our support staff in a while. Tom, uh, Jim Fur, our director, John John Binder, sound engineer. Thank you um, for your help. Uh, for uh, Tom Karamitis, this is uh, Gary Doyle saying. So, so that-